And of course, to the kids themselves for singing. That was, that was uh, wonderful. And actually, one goes right along with our text today, right? Uh, talking about uh, masters, and in that setting, of course, um, slavery in the New Testament time period was, um, was pervasive. Uh, there was about 50 million people in the Roman Empire, and um, slavery was throughout the empire. I just looked up this morning, and even today in our society, there's about 50 million people in the world today that would be in a slave-type environment, would be considered slaves. Um, and in that Roman world, there was many different ways you could be forced into slavery, which included children born into slavery, uh, people captured in war, individuals who were sold or self-sold into slavery. Some people would sell themselves into slavery. Infants who were abandoned at birth many times became slaves. Less common were children sold by their parents. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been tempted in this way, but this happened in the Roman Empire. And people being enslaved for debts, maybe some of you are enslaved today because of that, Punishment for crimes and people who were victims of kidnapping and piracy. And so Roman law, uh, enslaved people had no personal rights. They were regarded as the property of their masters. They could be bought and sold and mistreated at will. And they were unable, unable to own property or enter into contract or get married. So those of you here for the wedding... Um, it's a good sign. This means the two are not enslaved. So they're able to um, enter into matrimony, which is a great freedom, right? Uh, Brother Stephens, I can see he's smiling Amen. brightly, as also is his wife. So let's pray together as, before we get started then in our message today. Father in heaven, <clears throat> what a wonderful song we just heard. Amazing grace by that slave trader who saw that he needed to have freedom in his own life and, and be a person that was promoting freedom. And today we ask that you would, in fact, come and free our hearts and minds to be able to understand and hear your word for us individually. In Christ's name, amen. Um, back in the Roman time, slaves for the first several centuries during the time of Christ were often tattooed. They would have a tattoo on their foreheads to keep track of them. In the fourth century, they would start to wear these types of tags um, that were placed around their neck, um, and they could not get them off. This particular slave must have been known to try to escape, as you can tell here from this uh, Latin phrase, um, hold me lest I flee and return me to my master. So evidently he had tried to escape before, and this would help know where to take him uh, when returning him. And we've been in a series here on 1 Peter. We took a little break to look at Israel in Bible prophecy, and we looked at Gaza uh, in Bible prophecy. And last night we looked at um, the prophecy that is being fulfilled um, in front of our eyes as we listened and see things on the news. We looked at Daniel 7:25 last night. But today we're back to our series on 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 1 Peter, <clears throat> the conduct of a Christian in an alien culture such as we've just been <clears throat> describing. And 
As we've looked in our last few sermons, there was a personal conduct, a call to abstain from fleshly lusts so that silence, this would silence the criticism that Christians are just like anybody else, they're evildoers. It was a call to submit yourselves to self-control that was given by the Holy Spirit. You can't control yourself, but the Spirit can. It's a gift of the Spirit. It's not something you knuckle yourself through. It's something that's a gift of the Holy Spirit that you allow to come into your life. Conduct concerning the government. Again, a choice. Submit to the government officials in obedience to even their laws that might seem crazy. We went through some of those when we looked at that passage. And this will silence the criticism of foolish men. And it's also, again, a call to submit. And then the conduct of servants with their masters or with harsh slave masters, as we heard in our scripture reading as the subject today. This will not only uh, silence the voice of people concerning who you are, but it might give voice to Christianity to those who were, in fact, the slave owners and others within the culture. Again, a call to submit. So let's look then at our, 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 our passage today. The Bible and submission to mean masters or slave owners. Let's not try and sugarcoat it. The Bible um, talks about slavery very freely and has been misused through the years and through the centuries many times to promote slavery. Um, I believe it's a misreading of, of the scriptures, but there are certainly scriptures that could be easily misread um, to uh, promote slavery and were misread to promote slavery. In this particular passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, 18 through 25, is assuming slavery is the norm of the day. And not assuming, assuming that that slavery is necessarily a good thing. Um, there can be harsh slave masters. Servants, be submissive to your masters is um, the text under consideration today. Slaves were to be were being converted and they were becoming members of the church. And as they came in, they needed directions on how to relate to their masters. And they were being called to submit. That is to be under obedience. They were not being called to run away from their slave owners or come out of the social structure, but they were being asked to submit. You say, well, why didn't they just try and stop that immediately? Um, well, we'll look at a couple of texts about that during the message, but uh, submit um, to the masters, just as they were called to submit to government officials, as we looked in our last message together. So, how were they to submit? With all fear. That word fear, phobos, fright, terror. Doesn't sound good. Uh, submit out of fear or terror. Um, to the master, to the husband, <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 2, and when you witness. So, in all of these areas <clears throat> where it's calling for submitting, it has the word fear. Fear your master. Fear your husband. Fear as you witness. This is not the fear of humanity, by the way, but rather the fear of the Lord when we look closer at the text. And we're called to fear God, give him glory in the way we relate to our master, or our husband, our spouse, our whoever 
that we witness. And uh, it's like Mila is on the loose, folks. Watch out. <laughs> I mean, I think it's great to have a church full of children. I remember once I had a, I had a member who was all upset about the children, and he would get up and look at them. I visited him. I said, look, this, without the children, we have no church in the future. And he says, I don't care. Right now, I want to hear. Anyway. Um, so let me look at a text with you here in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, the gospel prophet. Isaiah chapter 8, and uh, let's read together. If you have your Bibles, you can open. I like to look up a few texts. Verse 12. <clears throat> Do not say a conspiracy. Well, that, that right there is a good sermon. <laughs> we could just stop there. Do not say a, cons a conspiracy concerning all this people calls a conspiracy, nor be afraid, there it is, that word, of their threats, nor be in dread. To be troubled means to be in dread. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, him, let him be your fear. What does it say? Let the Lord be your what? Fear. Let him be your dread. How many can say hallelujah? This, 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 this is, gives a whole idea of the fear of the Lord. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And what will be the result? Verse 14. And he will be a what? He will be a sanctuary. This is the whole idea. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread what they dread. Don't fear like they fear or dread like they dread in society. Instead, Fear God. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And when you do this, you will have a sanctuary. And that's why I love that, that Proverbs 19.23, I think it is. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. <laughs> he will not be visited with evil. This whole idea of dwelling within the presence of the Lord. And this is the whole idea of this fear text in context. Let's go back there to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look now around those verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, we just were looking at verse um, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, notice next what it says, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief. So the fear of the master is based on something with your conscience in, in relationship with God. Because you are mindful of God. You are obeying that master because you're mindful of God, not so much the master. Can you say amen? And you're fearing your husband. Why? Not because you fear your husband, but notice, look at that with me, in chapter 3, verse 6. After it talks about being submissive and living in fear towards your own husband, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid, are not afraid of any terror. So Sarah was not walking around in fear. Uh, or terror 
of <laughs> her husband or anyone else. Uh, <clears throat> so Sarah was to fear nothing in the sense of how you normally think of fear, but this idea is fearing God. It's an, it's an attribute of fearing God. And then also then, what about when you witness, verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Wait a minute, what's that mean? Verse 14, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. So this fear is not a human idea of fear or terror. It's living in the fear of the Lord. Does that make sense? And so the first pointer here in being submissive to your masters with all fear, it's saying it's as to the Lord. It's as to the Lord. Um, so let's continue on. With all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. That word harsh is an interesting word for those of you who are orthopedists. It's scoliosis. It's scolio. <laughs> It means the crooks, those who are crooked. There are those that are good and gentle, easy to deal with. And then there are those who are harsh, scolios, warped, crooked, or perverse. And this is where we get into difficulty. Man, this is boss, this, this person I work for, this master is a crook. Why should I live in obedience to that person? What Paul is saying, or what Peter is saying here is, rather than try and up, up, overturn Roman society, <laughs> you might get more attention by demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, self-control, long-suffering, patience, and living as to the Lord in that situation in obedience. You might gain more. In fact, you will gain more than trying to leave the situation. That's the counsel that's being given. Well, let's continue on. Well, why? For this is commendable, it says, verse 19 through 21. This is a gracious thing, charis, really. This, this is an amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is amazing grace to be able to do this. If because of conscience... Or in other words, being mindful of God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable. Again, a gracious thing before God. For to this you were called. It might seem kind of crazy to other people. It might seem... Uh, idiotic to do this, but before God it is a gracious thing. And for to you this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So why should this happen? What is it saying? Well, let's just uh, go through some of the things we saw. Because it's a commendable or gracious thing. It's a witness to God's grace in your life. It's a powerful witness. I remember once I had a lady who came to visit me here not, I might have been 10 years ago now, I've been here a while. And uh, 
she came to me and she said, I need to talk to you, and I'm always kind of nervous. It usually means that the person's going to talk about somebody else, which I'm, um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know, I don't think I look like a Catholic priest, but uh, either confess their sins or talk about somebody else. I don't like either. But um, the person came and they said to me, I, I want to talk to you, I need some counsel. Well, what is it? Well, this is what's happening at my workplace. They're persecuting me, they're saying this, they're doing this, they're doing the other, and I just wanted to come here to pray with you because I think I should leave. What do you think? I should have just zipped the lip, I should have said nothing. I should have just, you know, said, well, sister, the Lord will lead you. But I said, no, I think you should stay. Uh, Given what you've told me, I recommend you stay there for sure. And she said, what? Um, I said, yeah, I I think you should say. She goes, "Um, I just don't like that counsel. I don't like what you're saying. I said, well, this is is not the first time my counsel has not been well received, (laughs) although it's the first time between us. Um, And she goes, in fact, I don't even want to keep talking to you. And I said, well, I mean, (laughs) you don't have to take it that far. She goes, well, I'm, I'm not talking to you anymore. She walked out. And she didn't talk to me again. Um, and, and, and I thought, well, that was a fail. And then she moved away. And then a couple of years later, her husband asked me to come speak at some event, some youth congress or something, and I was out there speaking. And, and then I said, well, I'll, I'll stay in a hotel, because I knew his wife was, you know, his wife, still his wife, and I'll get myself a hotel. <laughs> Maybe an armored vehicle as well. But anyway, I'll get myself a hotel. And he says, no, 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 my wife wants you to come over. I'm like, ah, we are about to die, salute you. Uh, I thought, man, this is not good. And I got there, she ran up. She said, oh, it's so great to see you, you know. And I've been looking forward to seeing I said, maybe she's uh, taking psychedelics. Maybe, (laughs) don't know what. And I said, you know, we need to talk. uh, Maybe I've developed a little, my coconut's got a little extra cream in it or something, but I seem to remember that, uh, you know, we weren't really talking last time we were talking. She goes, that's what I want to talk to you about. And I was like, okay. Uh, is your husband going to, you know, let's keep him nearby. <laughs> and, and I said, well, what's happened? She goes, you know that advice you gave me? Oh, I was mad. I said, oh, yeah, I remember. I, I thought maybe the cheese had really slipped off the cracker there. She goes, no, no. Why? <laughs> that was the best advice. I didn't realize it then. And I didn't realize it till later. So what happened? Well, I, I stayed there. They kept persecuting me and saying all manner of evil against me falsely. And that's, by the way, what I had told her, that she should rejoice in the persecution. And she didn't like that. And she says, but you know what? When I left, the three of them started writing me, and they said, you know what? What you did and how you acted in this situation, you could have left You're a talented person. You could have got a job anywhere else, but you stayed and you modeled for us what to do in that situation. And we want to study the Bible with you. And now they've all become Christians. And that's what this is talking about. 
in a situation, it doesn't mean that's an ideal situation and that we're going to teach now slavery and to be harsh masters so we can develop grace in people. That's not the point. But if you're in that situation, can God use you in that situation? Can you do something gracious, commendable? Yes. Why? Because this, we were called to show grace in that harsh space. Not just in a good place, but in a harsh place. And why also, number three in the text, because Christ also suffered for us. What does that mean? Let's not just go over that rapidly. Why is it that we're called to this? Because Christ suffered for us. Later down in verse 24, it tells us how he did that. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It's talking about the cross. So how is it that we get through this? This also gives a, a grounding of how to get through this. It's not only a because, but it's a how. Uh, it's the basis of how. And what's the basis of the how in our lives as Christians? It's the atonement. It's what Christ has done and completed for you. It's not what you're going to do and what you're going to complete for Him. Most Christians, uh, well, maybe they're emerging Christians, are not really Christians until they understand this. There's nothing you can really do. Hello? I should be getting some amens there. There's nothing you can, it's what he has done for you. We're all sinners, masters and servants alike. Doesn't matter who you are at what station, you are an abject sinner, failure, worthless in a sense. Don't get me wrong. How many of you understand what I'm saying? We've all sinned, gone astray. We don't have right to anything but wrath. Right? And if you don't believe that, the sooner you do, the better it's going to be for you because you're going to appreciate what Christ has done for you then. The wages of sin is death. And it, it was to be instant death. One time I, I looked up after I read a very interesting article on akarat judgment, akarat judgment means instant judgment. And in the Old Testament, for every single one of the commandments, there's an incident where somebody dies instantly for breaking that commandment. Boom! That's it. Instant death. And by the way, that's how it could have been, but by the grace of God for everybody. How many are thankful for the grace of God? So this whole idea is the wages of sin is death. And the only hope that we have is that he died in our place. Can you say hallelujah? Christ suffered for you. He bore your sins in his own body. That's the whole point. So this is one of the reasons why, but it's also the foundation of how to navigate life. If you understand what Christ has done for you and your heart is filled with gratitude, somehow you have more ability to live life with a positive mental health. You're not a neurotic. You're not always freaked out because you know God loves you. You know what he's done for you. And it doesn't matter what anybody else does to you because you know him and you know what he's done for you. He suffered for me. He died on the tree for me. I'm worth something. 
Not because of me, but because he says so. It doesn't matter what you say if you're my slave master and you're harsh. It doesn't matter. Go ahead, because I know who I know. He's my shepherd. Something like that is a witness to any slave owner. Amen? And why can he do that? Because, verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And that's why it is that he can be that perfect atonement for you and me. Wow. He suffered as a perfect human, no sin, no deceit. And this is the foundation of our hope and our salvation. It's the foundation of our sanity, of our morality, of our very life. Not because we're perfect, because he's perfect. Amen? You're worse than you think, but he's better than you think. So why did he do this? Because he loves you. What does this do? It fills our hearts with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We love him, and then we're able to love others. And then we have joy, and then we're able to spread joy to others. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all wisdom and teaching, and monising others, and songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. I mean, you get so overwhelmed with it that you start singing to people. How many of you sang to anybody this last week? Besides me, I sang to a lot of people. <laughs> Just sing. sing to, this, is, this, is, this is an outflow of the atonement. That's the idea. Well, let's continue on. Um, this idea of freedom, of what God has done. The context of slavery in the New Testament, um, just like in Peter, it's alluding to here, and Corinthians says the thing, were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. If you can be made free, rather use it. In other words, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. The, the New Testament wasn't teaching that you should stay in slavery if you could be free. It's laying the foundation in these texts for the emancipation of any slave. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Get that. Look, you're a slave, but you're free. <laughs> Even if you're still in slavery, you're free. Because why? You understand the atonement. You understand what you were paid for. You understand, and now even though you are in that same structure, you're free. <laughs> you were bought with a crop of the price. <laughs> Do not become slaves of men. You might still be a slave, but you're free. <laughs> Paul is talking in nuanced language here, right? And yet, this is the foundation of the abolition movement right out of the New Testament. Don't tell me the Bible teaches propagation of slavery. It is a misreading of the Bible to say that. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state which he is called. Okay, so you can still stay within that structure. This is the whole point. 
You're still there. But notice again, verse 21. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. One more text on this from Philemon. With Onesimus. For perhaps Onesimus departed my slave with the name Onesimus for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever no longer as a slave but more than a slave. <laughs> a beloved brother. Can you say hallelujah to that? And this is the foundation. How many of you feel enslaved in any situation? That's not, you know, um, something you're doing. You know, maybe you feel like I've got student loans as long as I can see down the future. I've become an indentured servant. I am, I've got 10 years to work before I can pay back that. That's like a form of slavery today, right? Or I'm in another situation. I'm in whatever the situation. Or maybe you're in a marriage or a relationship that's not positive. You know, I remember Ellen White was talking once to a man, a woman that said, you know, your, your marriage was a temptation of the devil. Well, thank you. Thanks for the prophetic word on my marriage. And so you need to leave that guy. She didn't say that. She said, make the best of it. Make the best of it. Uh, uh, now, let's not make too much what I'm saying there. I don't think we're called to be in situations where there's physical abuse and these kind of things, but you get the idea of, of now Onesimus is going back. Paul pays all his debts. says, look, he's not just a slave. He's no longer a slave. He's a brother. He's a brother. Even though he's sending him back to his master, right? How did he, that is Christ, in his humanity achieve this? Now, this is the most important part of the sermon. So how do we achieve that? We've looked at the why. We've seen the foundation of the how, which is the atonement, right? We looked at the why, and we've seen the foundation of the how, which is the atonement. But what do we learn now, uh, does it say about Christ in, as our example here? This is his example. Who, when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So this is now Christ's example being given to us. What does this mean? He did not get involved in tit-for-tat exchanges. Someone reviled him, he didn't revile back. When someone suffered, you did this to me, I'll do that back to you. Revile means to vilify. He did not vilify back. To suffer, to be vexed, to be pained. Uh, he did not threaten. He did not return. It was not say, you did this, I'm going to do that. You did this, I'm going to do that. You crossed my border and killed all my people, I'm going to go back and bomb you. He didn't do that on the personal level. That's not what he did. So how, how, how could he do this? Here is the key verse, verse 23. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. Wait, what? Well, this is, this is the foundation of every happy marriage, okay? This is the foundation of every work and a boss-employee relationship. 
This is the foundation to every place where humanity is working with one another. And that is, you know there's going to be problems. How many of you just know there's going to be problems based on your own personality alone? All of you should be raising your hand like we're at the, the roller coaster ride right now. Nobody's raising their hands. It's like, now we have a problem. We're going to talk about prevarication and lying next week. You just know there's going to be problems based on, on yourself. Now, okay, this is probably easier. How many of you know there's going to be problems based on the other people in your life? I see a lot more hands. But here's the, here's the foundation of dealing with that. But committed himself, this is in his humanity, to him who judges righteously. This is the Lord himself as our example. And he says, wait, the way to get through things is to do what? Understand there's a judgment and there's a process and trust the process. Trust the judge. Don't hold the grudge. Just trust the judge. That's the point. That's a lot easier said than done. How many can say that's a lot easier said than done? And that's why we have the midweek service, folks. (laughs) Literally, he is saying what? Literally in the tense of the Greek, he kept on handing over to him who judges righteously. He did what? He kept on handing over. It wasn't a one-time, okay, handoff, touchdown. No, it was he kept on. He's just moving the ball two inches down towards the field goal, to the football line, right? It was a, a series of brutal plays. And he kept on doing what? Handing it over. Handing it over to him who judges righteously. How many think this is the key to mental health? Look, some places don't have the gospel. They don't know about the atonement. And the reason you can hand it over is because you realize what he has accomplished. He was judged on the cross. It says in John chapter 12. But it also says there is a final judgment in chapter 12. He was judged, and yet there is a judgment, so we can trust him, and he modeled that trust by trusting his, his father. He did that even after he went to heaven. Remember when he came back down to resurrect the body of Moses, and Satan starts, hey, you can't do this and that, and he accused him of saying, you know, that's not fair, and he goes, <laughs> sorry, uh, judgment will come later, we're not discussing that now. Now, how many think that's just freeing? You don't have to get to the bottom of everything. I've met people that just have to get to the bottom of everything they think. Oh, we're going to solve this right now. You don't have to be that person. <laughs> you can commit to who? This is what Jesus did. He kept on handing over, literally yielding, surrendering to him who judges righteously. Could he have executed judgment right then? Could he have called 10,000 angels? Did he do it? He didn't do it. Did he have power? And by the way, do you have power? Everybody here has power. And are you misusing your power? Are you tempted to use your power in certain ways? 
This is the point of the text. Jesus had a crown of thorns. <laughs> he didn't say anything when they put it on him. He took a beating. He took mocking. He took spitting. And at any time, he had all power to take care of that and liquefy his enemies. But his strength was so shown not in doing that, but in not doing that. And the strength was shown in the slave-master relationship, not in just overwhelming and overcoming the slave owner, but in having such a confidence in God that there was a sweet peace and serenity, even in that situation. Ultimately, it turned the empire upside down, and ultimately, it obliterated slavery. And because people are turning away from the Lord now, in this nation and around the world, we have more and more of this tit-for-tat stuff going on. We have more and more need for, we think we have need for more laws, we think we have need for more military might. We have more need for more jails. Why? Because people are not accepting or proclaiming the gospel. That's the point. He kept on handing over to him he who judges righteously. Say that to the person next to you. Say that to the person next to you. He. Go ahead. I want to hear it. He what? How many want to keep on? How many want to keep on keeping on? That's the point that's being made. I, I couldn't help but think of, you know, the unrest in our world today. And we had, you know, a real mon monstrous act by a terrorist group that went across the border and killed a bunch of people. That was terrible. And then there's a response, which also is terrible. Because in both situations, people are innocent people are dying. Right? I'm not saying that the people that did that should not be dealt with. You don't get, don't get me wrong. I know that the, you know, Romans 13 says that you bear the sword. I know there's a place for that. I understand that. But could there even be a higher calling than that? Look, if you're in a religion that has not really accepted Christ as the Messiah, you don't have that in your mind in the fullest extent. If you're in a culture that hasn't accepted Christ as, as the Lord, you don't have that in your mind, and neither of these groups have that fully in their mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? Both of them need something that you have, and that's the gospel. Or at least I hope you have it. Now, there was a guy, Josh Paul, this last week, who, who resigned from the State Department. And I, I don't know much about him. I don't know if he's someone I should even talk about, and I don't want to politicize the sermon or anything. But I just thought that he kind of got this idea right. So he resigns, and he, he tells why. Hamas' attack on Israel was not just a monstrosity. It was a monstrosity of monstrosities. I also believe that potential escalations by Iran-linked groups such as Hezbollah and Iran itself would be a further cynical exploitation of the existing tragedy. 
When you see people going back or countries going back tit for tat and they start fighting, do other people like to get involved in the fight? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? Then he goes on. I believe to the he, he resigned, and this was in his resignation letter. I believe to the core of my soul that the response Israel is taking, and with it the Amer- and with it the American support, is the wrong response. He says it will only lead to more and a deeper suffering for both the Israeli and Palestinian people. How many think he's he's onto something here? And then he said this. I mean, I'm, I'm not quoting the whole letter. I took out the politically inflammatory stuff, but I took out the stuff I wanted. That's what happens when you're making the sermon. You can do that. So, decades of the same approach. I thought this was true. Decades of the same approach have shown that security for peace leads to neither security nor to peace. What is he saying? More military munitions and blowing each other up, whether it be with bombs that you made in your backyard or bombs that you got shipped from another country, it does not solve the problem. How many would agree with that? And that's the whole point that Peter is making when he talks about dealing with slave masters. He says you must elevate the argument beyond a Spartacus mindset, if you understand that movie. Or that story. You've got to elevate it. You've got to do something so unusual that the person knows it's not from you. It's not from carnality. It's from divinity. It's something not human. It's something divine. It's not something secular. It's something sacred. What? I treated you like that? And you are acting like that to me? Oh, I'm having a hard time sleeping at night. Not because I don't have all power to get rid of you at my will, says the slave master, but something is changing in my mind because you have some kind of higher moral standing than I do. Wow. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's the same thing we just read in another way, isn't it? Quoting from Deuteronomy, by the way. A number of times in Deuteronomy. So yield up to the judgment of God. Let God handle it. So what do you do and say, well, what do I do? What do I do then? Well, this is what you should do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Don't cut off all water and food. Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. I wasn't expecting this. For in so doing, look at this. This is Operation Firestorm. For in so doing, 
you will put a nuclear weapon on his head. <laughs> How many think this maybe could be a secret to peace, not just in the Middle East, but in your house? Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Wow. Operation Heap Coals of Fire. Don't avenge or seek revenge. Leave the wrath with God. Leave vengeance to God. What should you do? <laughs> Feed your enemy. Give your enemy water. By the way, did God do that? What's it say in Romans 5? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were what? Ungodly. While we were even enemies. What does he do? He comes down here. He comes into the midst of the conflict. He gets beat up as God. He's feeding people. Okay, I'll feed 5,000 today. Okay, I'll feed 4,000 today. Okay, okay. In the Old Testament, I, oh yeah, you will need some water, I'll make you some water. They're all complaining. <laughs> Did he actually do what he said? Now, I can't say that I've modeled this most effectively in my own life. There have been a few times, far too few, but I remember once I was in a, in a seminary and I was taking a preaching class, and it was called African-American Preaching. And I thought, man, you know what? That's kind of racist. I'm going to get in that class. So I went in. And now, I don't know if you can notice, but I'm not really dark-skinned. <laughs> uh, I went in, and I defended myself by showing them my freckles. I said, I have remnants. And so they let me in. And I was in there, and I'm telling you what, these guys... These guys could preach, and they could bring some heat. They had their lungs with their, with their presentation. I mean, they used all their lungs and their larynx and everything else. And I mean, it was loud. So one brother, after he got through preaching, I said to him, I had some counsels from you know, testimonies on speech or whatever. I can't remember what the compilation was. And I, I picked out a, comp, you know, a, a choice quote that I thought would be useful. So the guy would be able to preach for more than, you know, three years in his ministry, because I thought he was going to blow out his, you know, his speaking apparatus. And I honestly thought this would be good, to share this pearl with him. I've learned a lot since then. So I went to him and I said, I just wanted to bring this to your attention. And he, he said a lot of things. I won't tell you what he said, but let's put it this way. He did not like what I said. And so he picked me up, and he began to beat me against the lockers in the bottom of the, uh, of the seminary building. And I mean, he didn't just beat me. He was like, he was, he was whipping me against these, and bang, bang. And, um, and I was like, I'm getting beat up in the basement of the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary for saying something about someone's sermon. Now, this is... Now, afterwards, let me just tell you, don't say anything about my sermon. No, no, <laughs> I'm fine with whatever you want to say to me about my sermon. I'm past that, right? I understand what I've been preaching. But anyway, he did that. And 
I was like, man, I went back to my house. I told my grandfather, I don't even know. Did I tell you about this, Lomanitsa? I don't know if you were there. I told them what happened. They were like, what? And, and, and then I was thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I shouldn't have said that. What I said, I really shouldn't have said. Why didn't I just zip the lip? So I need to, I need to see this guy. So I said, uh, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. So I go to the next day, and I go to talk to him. I said, where is he? And I named his name. Let's call him Steve. Nothing against any Steve here, but I said, where's Steve? Oh, Steve's not here today. I said, oh, really? Where is Steve? Oh, he hurt his back. I don't know. He was doing something. <laughs> I said, well, how did he hurt his back? Oh, we don't know. I said, oh, I, I think I know. So then I went home and I said, you know, I'm going to make this guy, I'm going to make him some cinnamon rolls. Back then I made cinnamon rolls every week. And um, so I made these cinnamon rolls. These were definitely not Weimar approved. These were slurping with with uh, brown sugar and butter and everything that will cause you to die in 10 minutes. So, and, and, and that was not by design, that was because it was so delectable. And oh man, the aroma was great. And I made these cinnamon rolls and I said, I'm going to take them over to, to Steve. So I go over to Maplewood Apartments. And I get there to the apartments and I find his place there and his window and there's a fan that's taking the cool air from outside and blowing it inside. And I take the cinnamon rolls and I put them right by the fan. And they waft into the house and I can hear them all going, mm, that smells good. They said, little kids saying that, the wife is saying that, uh, you know, preparing the way for the kings of the East, I guess. And then they invite me in. And I said, uh, yeah, it's Jerome home. He goes, yeah, he's, he's in the back room. He, he, he hurt his back. I said, oh, I just brought him a little, some cinnamon rolls. Oh, that's so nice. So nice. He had a hard day at school the other day. I said, oh, he did, yeah. And I said, I, 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 yeah, I did too. Um, yeah, we, uh, we had some hard times there. And I knew he hadn't told him anything about it. He said, do you mind if... I go in and say hi. And he goes, he goes oh, you brought the cinnamon rolls, of course. <laughs> so I, I said, I'll take a couple rolls in. And I went in to give him the cinnamon rolls. Gave him the cinnamon rolls. I, I come in and he goes, oh, baby, that smells so good. I said, I'm not your baby, but... <laughs> And he turns around, and he goes, oh, he had a look of joy and pain at the same time. He's like, Bleh. And I got to tell you, I don't know what I enjoyed more, the pain or the joy. But, but I, I instantly I said, look, I shouldn't have said what I said. He goes, well, it was true, but you shouldn't have said it. And I said, no, I don't think so. So I wanted to give you something sweet to try and take care of this. You know what? It did take care of it. It did take care of it. I fed my enemy. And he became, first of all, a friend of me, and then a friend of me. Now, one other story coming out, and we'll close with this. 
as I was listening and looking at this Gaza-Israel thing, this because I've got friends on both sides of that from being over there a few times, and because everybody studies about it, which is what I talked about last night, but I saw another story. There was a cardinal in Bethlehem. I can't remember his name, but it starts with pizza, and remember that, pizza something. Definitely probably in Italian. You know what he said? I want to give my life for the hostages. Do the paperwork. You do whatever you need to. But I'm happy to go to Gaza and be exchanged for the hostages. doesn't have to be all of them, any of them. I'm willing to lay down my life for the hostages. And you know, that touched my heart. When I saw that, I was like, man, that's the right spirit. That's that, it's not a subterranean tit for tat. That's a lofty offer. How many of you think you'd be willing to do that? And this is doing that. Anyway, no one told him he had to do that. And it reminds us of he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And how, what does that do to us? When we see that, we want to die to sins. We want to live for righteousness. By whose stripes you are healed. For you, like sheep, are going astray, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What is the result when we live the way that's being suggested by Peter? Evil will be overcome with good. How many want that to happen in your life? And in this world? And in your community? Death to sin will take place in your own experience. How many of you want to have some more death to sin in your own experience? Life will be given for righteousness. How many want your life to be given for righteousness? Healing will come to us by his stripes and through us by our stripes. And we'll be like sheep who are back on the path. Because let's face it, every single one of us here has gone astray. And how many of you think maybe it's time to get back on the path? And where does it end up? But now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our what? Of our souls. Notice how it ends. It's the answer to how it begins. Harsh masters and a loving master and shepherd. The situation doesn't change, but the mindset changes. Everything changes when I see that my master is the good shepherd. What a powerful word from the Lord today. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.